The Afterword is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. That's W-O-R-D. Hello, I'm June Thomas, welcoming you to The Afterword, a Slate podcast in which I talk with the authors of new nonfiction books. My guest today is Slate's politics and foreign affairs editor, William J. Dobson, whose book, The Dictator's Learning Curve, Inside the Global Battle for Democracy, has just been published. First of all, congratulations on having written a fascinating, extremely readable book. You did a ton of traveling as you were working on the book, Mm -hmm. Uh, 93,268 miles, you calculate. (laughs) So I'm glad you didn't have to travel very far to talk. Yeah, right. Um, Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sure. You begin the book by noting that not long ago, an autocrat, whether a nationalist strongman, revolutionary hero or communist apparatchik, could use blunt weapons to keep his people under his thumb. But that's no longer the case, except, you know, in a few extreme prison states like North Korea. And so your book is sort of a chronicle of the evolving tactics of both democracy activists and dictators. Uh, As you say a little later, modern dictators work in the more ambiguous spectrum that exists between democracy and authoritarianism. What do you mean by that? How do you define a dictatorship? And and for that matter, how do you define a democracy? And Mm. to the extent that these ideas can be fuzzy or malleable is actually quite an asset uh, to the modern-day authoritarian. And they actively work to sort of exploit that ambiguity, if you will. Take, for example, a place like Russia. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, look at the Constitution. It's a good Constitution. It reads very well. It has the rights and privileges that you would find in many Western constitutions. If you look at a lot of the laws that come out of the Russian Duma, even though it's a, by even the Duma's own account, a rubber stamp parliament, you know, many of them can be found, election laws and whatnot can be found in the most sort of humdrum European democracy. Um, Many of the things that Chavez in Venezuela does, from a legal standpoint, you can find antecedents in rather boring democracies as well. So what you end up having to do really is you end up having to look at these things very up close to sort of see how they actually operate. I mean, you could, at the the same measure, look at aspects of, say, you know, the American democracy that we have here and say, well, they're, they're undemocratic elements of it. I mean, just take, you know, in the last few days as we've been watching a unelected, opaque body decide whether, you know, laws are constitutional or not. Five people's opinion at the end of the day <laughs> is what it took to validate a process that went through a truly democrat, much more democratic process of elected representatives saying this is what we want in a healthcare law. These regimes, they understand this ambiguity and they work to exploit it by making sure that they have uh, an election process in place, making sure they work through legal mechanisms to accomplish what can be deeply undemocratic aims. Well, right. And let's talk about Russia and their particular brand of elections. Modern Russia is clearly very different from the Soviet period. In certain key ways, people are more free. But uh, as you show, quite a bit of that freedom is illusory because there's so much central control. Now, there's a very Russian way that you describe of stealing elections. Can you tell us about that? 
<laughs> There's so many ways, uh, you know, frankly. I mean, it's sort of, you know, th- th- I think the best definition that I actually ever got uh, on sort of how um, the Russian system works under Putin is from an opposition leader named Boris Nemtsov, who said there's a key difference between Putinism and communism, which was that communism came for everything. Uh, whereas Putinism, mm. it doesn't, it's not concerned with your personal rights. It just wants your political freedoms. It's a much more sort of surgical and tailored approach because at the end of the day, think what you want to think, live the life you want to live. It's far too expensive and costly for the regime to be concerned with that as, yeah. say, they were during the Soviet period or, say, you, what you would have found in China um, you know, decades ago, the same sort of recalibration or, or different compact has been formed there. You know, I think this actually comes very much out of Putin's own personal experience. But, but in terms of you know, the rigging of elections there, I mean, in the, there's an understanding that there's really no, no great value in trying to win an election with 99% of the vote. I mean, it's openly absurd. Uh, it's, you know, it's sort of nothing more than an advertisement for the rigging itself. So in the case of Russia now, you do find that even at a lower level, United uh, Russia candidates, you know, they generally win with 70 percent, 60 percent, 79 percent of the vote because it's important to maintain the illusion of a contested election because it's much more valuable to appear to win a contested election than it is to win an openly rigged one. Right. But as we saw to a certain extent in Russia last winter and in Iran in 2009, elections, when they seem rigged, when people feel like their vote didn't count – they can be very effective at mobilizing opposition forces. Absolutely. I mean, elections are fundamentally a vulnerable moment for a regime. If you're going to try to walk this line, if you're going to try to play this game, if you will, you have to play it well, because if you don't, you're, you know, you're dealing with with sparks surrounded by, you know, gunpowder. To take the Russian example in particular, I mean, you had a series of sort of missteps that I think really pushed a segment of the Russian population too far. I mean, you, you had only shortly before that Putin announcing that he was in fact coming back for another term as president. Um, that was, I think, to some degree for some people, a surprise. Not necessarily that he was going to do that, but then it was followed by a statement that this was always the plan. Mm. And this was just deeply insulting to the Russian people that it felt like, I mean, not only did we dupe you, but we're even so confident and cocky about it that we're willing to tell you that we've duped you. And of course, by the way, when I come back this time, because one of the first things I had my predecessor do was extend the presidential term, I can now come back for 12 years. Now you sort of have what, what again, Nemtsov referred to me as sort of Mubarak number two. I mean, you're ultimately looking at a situation where the Russian people would end up sort of living under Putin for essentially 25 years, practically, um, if you consider Medvedev's term as really still being an extension of Putin's own. You know, this was sort of a very tone-deaf maneuver by the regime. Um, You began to see sort of that anger first appearing on on the internet. Uh, One of the best images was taking um, Putin and putting him in Brezhnev's military uniform. Mm. Um, And, you know, people began to make that direct comparison, that this is what they were getting. And then... In that climate, to then really even by their own measure, rigging those December Duma elections in just such an obvious and clumsy way, it was enough to sort of wake up a population that is we constantly hear are completely apathetic. And that's you always hear that everywhere. Every country I went to, it's always the common story, the common myth that the people here have no interest in politics. And that's right. always the case until the day they do. As you say uh, elsewhere in the book, an apathetic public is, is the, a dictator's greatest 
gift. Once people lose their apparent apathy, they're potentially in trouble. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, when, when they become interested in, and participate and believe that there can be a relationship between their demands and what actually occurs, what happens, this is an incredibly dangerous concept. Uh, I mean, this is why the first response from a regime, and this is in every instance, whether we're talking about the most skillful or we're talking about the most clumsy, like, say, in a, in a Syria or something, the first response from these regimes is always that these people are foreign agents, yeah. that these people are drug addicts, that these people are looters and criminals, because they're trying to, and it's important to understand this, you're trying to talk to them, to really not your opponents, you're trying to talk to that vast middle mm -hmm. that makes up the country, which you must keep on your side and persuade. And so they want to cast these people as being part of some fringe element, because if that's the case, then they're extreme, and they don't actually represent the boiling over of resentment and anger and disenchantment with the regime. A lot of the book is spent in Venezuela. You have very interesting insights into Venezuela and Hugo Chavez. And Chavez has done something very interesting. Obviously, as we know, he's gone to the polls again and again. People in Venezuela vote more frequently than you know, some of us go out to dinner. But one of his great tactics has been to first identify with the poorest Venezuelans who had been ignored by the political class and then eventually they came to identify with him. So that's another way of kind of segmenting the population, right? Yeah. I mean, Venezuela, I went to Venezuela a couple times uh, for the book and uh, it's really one of the most fascinating because it's probably the place where you see the, sort of the notion of what is what makes a democracy the most malleable because – as you say, I mean, it's it's openly apparent. People are voting all the time. I mean, essentially, the system he's created is one where he sort of made what it means to be a democracy devoid of all meaning aside from the ballot box. And so because it is obvious and crucially important that the fact that he can point to those elections and those ballots, that is his main claim. That is really his – almost his only claim as to why his system is not an authoritarian one. It is why you know, when you talk to even people on the sort of far American left uh, in the United States, they will say, wait a minute, I understand why – most of these countries are on your list, but why would Venezuela be on your list? I, I understand he wins those elections. And it's true, but it's, it's an incredibly centralized regime where everything else, all other components, the things, again, to go back to sort of what I was saying at the outset, all the things, if you were to actually look at what makes a democracy, it's far more than those ballots. You know, you have a system where he's essentially, with each election, actually the people in Venezuela lose more of what is their democracy. But to your point... Yes, I mean it's also a consequence of what was a deeply failed democracy, and there's no arguing that. I mean, the you know the 1990s sort of culminate, and really Venezuela only proving that there's further to fall. And so, in that sense, Chavez is a incredibly natural consequence of of really a, just 20 years of failed policy by the Venezuelan government. And he comes in and, you know, basically finds that, you know, look, the two lowest segments of the population, the least uh, served, get you about 80 percent of the population. Wow. And so he spent the first five years really not speaking to anyone else in the country but them. Everything was addressed to them because he understood that once he had their support, he could then speak for them going forward. And since that time, he speaks for them. And, and now it's fascinating to find there's actually you know, so, much, so many years of failure there under his own regime. His own numbers are shifting. And so he's not nearly as popular, popular as he once was. And that's the chief 
challenge he finds today. And one of the things that I found fascinating was that uh, Chavez, like Putin, maintains very tight control of the broadcast media, of television especially, but allows newspapers to you know, express opposition opinions to a certain point because he knows that the people who read newspapers are his opponents anyway and will never support him. So that's right. Yeah, it's very, it's very, you know, and you see this, you, you know, you actually can see this almost everywhere. I mean, even in China, a place where there's hardly press freedom, there's much more press freedom than there ever was. And in particular on sort of the economic beat, um, Mm -hmm. because it's one of the only ways that the regime gets good information about the people that are just absurdly corrupt. You know, it's it's a way of actually getting some valuable information into the system. But in the case of Chavez, yes, I mean, the, those those small circulation newspapers are helpful because for that educated elite that probably isn't supporting him anyway, it's a great tool for letting them just vent their frustration. And it's also a very helpful thing to point to when you have a foreign journalist that comes to town to sit and, and questions whether or not there's press freedoms. What do you mean? You would, you know, I would get this all the time in Egypt in 2010. Um, I, I, you know, how can you say that we don't have a robust uh, press? They're criticizing Mubarak all the time, and that was true. You know, from 2005 on, sort of the taboo of criticizing Mubarak was still one that you know, w- w- had become completely acceptable. You could go out into the streets in, in Cairo in 2006 and say, down with Mubarak. Mm-hmm. You would not be arrested. You could say, down with Suzanne, his wife. You could say, down with Gamal. You couldn't say, though, interestingly, you could not say down with, with uh, Tentawi. You could not criticize the Egyptian military. That was a red line even up to the uprising in 2011, and it remains one today. Indeed. Well, I want to ask you a lot more about Egypt, but let's just pause for a moment to give away some books. But first, I want to let you know that this month, The Afterword is sponsored by Audible.com. They're offering a free audiobook to any U.S. listener who signs up for a new 30-day free trial. Audible has more than 100,000 audiobooks available for download, as well as audio versions of newspapers and magazines. Membership also includes free access to the daily audio digest versions of The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal. The Dictator's Learning Curve isn't available on Audible for the moment, at least, but let me recommend Anne Applebaum's Pulitzer-winning book Gulag, A History, which is available in all its 27 hours and 45 minutes glory. To get your 30-day free trial, which will allow you to download one of the 100,000 audiobooks available on Audible, go to audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. That's audiblepodcast.com dot com slash afterward if you use that url the afterward will get credit now double day has very kindly given us three copies of the dictator's learning curve to give away to listeners if you would like one send an email with the words dictator giveaway in the subject line to slate afterward at gmail.com by eleven fifty nine p.m eastern time on friday july 13th 2012 and we'll choose three winners at random if you've been lucky in one of our previous giveaways please don't enter for at least three months after a win to give other listeners a chance we'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address and if you have any feedback about the podcast please send it to the same address slate afterward at gmail.com I'm talking with Will Dobson, author of the new book, The Dictator's Learning Curve, Inside the Global Battle for Democracy. Will, one of your chapters is devoted to the opposition and certainly being a member of a political opposition movement in an authoritarian country is an extremely tricky thing. I always wonder why 
anyone would become a politician in a free country, but <laughs> you know that's even less clear. So what are some of the marks of an effective opposition activist? Yes, I mean it's 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 a it's a very dangerous uh, right. line to walk. Not just because it's just a dangerous line of work to trying to be openly critical of of these regimes, but it's also you know in a way that we might not expect, which is just that um, if you're actually not very effective, you can very quickly find yourself becoming almost an appendage of the regime, yeah. uh, because in this calculation, in this formulation of trying to sort of be a more sophisticated and savvy uh, authoritarian system, it's actually quite necessary to have opposition. And so these leaders will sometimes say, wait a minute, am I in some way actually through my actions helping to bolster or buttress the system? Uh, Can they point to me as being sort of this opposition, but I'm so ineffective that in fact, you know, it's, it's, it's not doing anything to challenge the system as exists. So those that are, that are most effective, I think, you know, a couple that I point to in the book were out for opposition leaders out of Venezuela and out of Malaysia in particular, for example, in a place like Venezuela, it's really taken almost a generational change because mm-hmm. the people that were in place before were really – they were part of some of those failed policies that I mentioned earlier. And so they really didn't have the credibility with the public. Um, and I don't think they were ultimately even capable really of sort of refashioning themselves. So you really had to have a change of faces. Yeah. But also that you had sort of an awareness of – what it actually takes. And, you know, when I would talk to them, it was actually quite incredible. I would, you know, I probably interviewed upwards of a dozen different opposition leaders in Venezuela. And when I would ask them, you know, what is what is it that you think you need to do that you either haven't done or, or are beginning to do? And they said, look, it's very simple. One, we can't just be against Chavez. Um, that's not very helpful at all at the end of the day. One, you sort of go into his rhetorical game. And two, people... Don't, they're not interested in the problems of politicians. They want to know what you stand for, not what you stand against. Uh, you also have to be very connected to the population. And that's something that is, again and again, you find in an Egypt or a Russia, a constant complaint is that the opposition leaders are, you know, they're well known in Moscow, they're well known in Cairo, but they're not well known outside. Yeah. You have to find a way to be able to connect to a much wider group of people, which is extremely difficult when you don't control the means of communication, mm-hmm. um, when you're limited or your rallies are never approved with the correct permits or are cracked down if, if they ever do happen. In the case of, of Malaysia, I spent a number of days traveling around Malaysia with Anwar Ibrahim and you know they hold their rallies at night because mm-hmm. they're biggest ones because they know people are most comfortable coming out at night because it's harder for the regime to keep track of who was there. You have to be creative. And a great example of that came out of Venezuela for me where when an opposition leader does win at a local level, uh, one of the first things that often happens is they lose a lot of the resources that they have to actually govern. You know, the garbage trucks disappear, uh, the budgets are slashed, things like this. And so what they've found is, again, people don't care if that happens. They might say, you know what, I like your ideas, but if you can't deliver the services I need as a citizen in this country, then I I have no choice but to vote for the other side. So what they did in one instance, I was taking a tour of a school that had recently been refurbished. And, you know, it's it's, it's sort of what you would imagine, one classroom after another, so on and so forth, a computer lab, so on and so forth. And then they open up another door and it's a dentist's office. Mm. And, you know, and I said, I'm sorry, why is there a dentist's office in the middle of this sort of grade school? And they said, well, the people in this community are very proud of the school. And we figured if we begin to sort of put basic services inside things that the state really can't take away, then the community will be able to come here to get the medical care they need. And we service the population and the regime is helpless to strip it from them because if they were to do that, it would be beyond unpopular. So you have to sort of think in ways that are probably 
against the norm in order to sort of work in the seams of an authoritarian system. That's fantastic. You have a great section on Mubarak and the Egyptian military. And uh, as you say, he survived in large part by preying on people's fears of what would happen if he weren't there. Dictators always want their people and potential or sort of tentative allies to think that things could be worse. You talk about the ways in which Mubarak was using a tricky strategy, um, as you say, conceding political space in order to maintain it. He kept redrawing his own red lines. And uh, as we were saying before, you know, it gave people just that, that taste of freedom. Once you suggest that maybe you should have elections, for example, people expect them. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, you know, it's very it's very much the conventional wisdom now to sort of hold up Mubarak as sort of the template or the model of sort of the failed dictator because, well, he he ultimately did fail. He ultimately was ousted. But in doing that, we're sort of we're sort of forgetting that for thirty years it worked, um, and that's no small accomplishment, particularly against what it was he actually had to work with. I mean, this is not a regime that anyone wants to model their economy on. You know, no right. one's talking about the, the, the miracle on the Nile. Uh, this isn't China with booming economic growth. This isn't a country with large natural resources. There's, there's no oil. I mean, you've got a canal. You've got tourism. That wasn't going to be enough. So in the case of Mubarak, he really had to rely on fear. But it wasn't sort of the fear that we think of and we think of like a Burmese junta or we think of North Korea or Iran even um, because – Progressively over this period of time, progressively, you know, people's lives in Egypt actually became somewhat freer. Right. Not free, but freer. You know, re- really what he relied on was an, sort of an alternative history of if I'm not here, this is what will happen. And so that was one element. And then the other element was – and, you know, it was quite fascinating because I was first interviewing some of Mubarak's advisors what was ultimately nine months before the end of the regime. <laughs> of course, we didn't know it. Right. And I asked them, you know – how are you able to do this? And and they were very candid because they had no idea that they were living on borrowed time. And so, you know, when you're that cocky, you're more than willing to sort of pull back the curtain. And, mm-hmm. and as one of them said to me, is, look, you know, you have to understand that everything here is manufactured. Everything here is a fiction. What Mubarak understands that many others don't is that when you see people calling for a change, you need to get to that change first. Get out in front of it so then you can shape it. And it's very true. I mean, if you look at sort of the statements that were made by that regime in the, say, basically since roughly 2002, 2003, if you sort of just closed your eyes and just listened, you would have thought this was a regime going through a remarkable political and economic opening. (laughs) Their talking points were just filled with this sort of rhetoric. But it was, of course, it was a fiction. And when no one's looking, they'd admit it. One thing that Mubarak couldn't defeat, uh, you know, even if there hadn't been the uprising last year, was age. I mean, (laughs) it's very hard for a individual dictator to live forever. I'm sure some of them are working on it. But the old school image of the dictator of a guy with a bushy mustache, it has been overtaken a little bit in a lot of places by either in Egypt, maybe the military is still a dictatorial power. I don't know, perhaps that's not quite the right term or the right judgment, but they certainly exercise a huge amount of power. And in a place like China, which again, you cover in a really interesting way, the dictatorship is is constantly changing because I guess it's the Chinese Communist Party rather than any specific individual. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, the Chinese Communist Party understands that it's impossible, really, or just not practical at this point for them to have any single person who could play this role. And so there were really only two people in modern China who could ever sort of sit, astri- you know, sit astride all of China, and that was Mao and Deng Xiaoping. And, and with Deng's passing, there would now no longer be sort of this paramount leader. And so you had this, the system change to accommodate that reality, and so now you have Chinese – the senior Chinese leaders serve two terms. I wonder where they got that idea from. <laughs> and at the end of that, they step down. And there's no law to this effect. It's a norm that was built up by the party itself. And so they understand that you know they are now at a phase in their history where there's no individual who can be, and it's not it's not desirable for an individual to be greater than the party. Uh, the party is sort of the bedrock. The idea of having that individual be in charge is a very unsettling one to many people. It sort of re- makes them recall not just their own like warlord period from earlier in the last century, yeah. but also no one has an appetite for living at the whims of someone after having lived at the whims of Mao. Yeah. So, you know, you see that sort of change take place. I was in China about 10 days after Mubarak fell, and I was meeting with a Chinese Communist Party official who told me, you know, just straight away, I, I was asked, we were talking, the conversation was about Egypt. And he said, well, you know, first of all, one man running a country for 30 years, who does that anymore? Their approach is even more sophisticated than that. I mean, this is, a, this is an important aspect, but, but even at the governing level of just how they actually try to implement policy, they're borrowing many ideas from not other authoritarian regimes. They're borrowing ideas from democracies and employing them there because they understand that if they can create more consensus on the decisions that the party makes, that it has a very powerful effect of calming dissent. And even those who don't like the decisions that are made, you're much less likely to try and turn over the, turn over the whole Apple card if you say, well, at least I was able to have my peace. I, I voiced mm-hmm. what I think should be done. And if they didn't agree with me, they didn't agree with me, but they heard me. Yeah. It's interesting. So many, so many people talk about authoritarian regimes around the world trying to sort of ape or model themselves on China and that China is somehow this beacon of authoritarianism to, to other lesser regimes. Well, that may be true, but China is actually – they're not borrowing lessons from other authoritarian regimes. They're actually borrowing lessons from Europe and the United States. And as you say, they also – you know, people who are – uh, in the upper echelons of the party are constantly studying and they not only go to places like Harvard to study, but they also you know, take endless classes where executives from Procter & Gamble or Citibank or Goldman Sachs come and talk to them. So they're you know, in a state of constant self-improvement. And, yeah, and, and that's actually, you know, that's a little bit, you know, the party shouldn't get all credit for that. That's actually one of those things that's been true in China for centuries. Mm. Uh, the idea that the, that the official, I mean, officials had um, a constant rotation and the idea that they should take on different briefs and have to move to different parts of the country so they never are able to establish too much of a power base yeah. in one individual place. And in the case of, you know, this is an important difference, a key difference between, say, a Middle Eastern regime, some of the regimes that we see that family connections were so important. Family connections are very important for business in China, but you don't get to be the leader of the Communist Party because your dad was. That has no currency whatsoever. These people are tested. They're put to different – you know, you take someone like Hu Jintao and they – are grooming this man for the position that he has had now for you know the last ten years, which was you know he had to work at the Central Party School, which is sort of the innovation center hub, but he also had to do a tour in Tibet mm-hmm. where they wanted to see how he could handle a situation like that. There's more rotation in the senior leadership of the Chinese Communist Party than there is in any Western democracy. <laughs> um, so when we think about these things as being these sort of ossified regimes, well. 
actually there's greater ossification in the, in the degree of incumbency in the West than there is in the Chinese Communist Party, which is sort of an astounding thing to think about. It is. And uh, let's leave it there and just ponder that. Well, thanks once again for chatting with me today. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was Will Dobson, whose new book, The Dictator's Learning Curve, Inside the Global Battle for Democracy, is available in bookstores now. If you have any comments about our discussion, send them to slateafterword at gmail.com. Our engineer was Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening to The Afterword. For Slate.com, I'm June Thomas. Thank you.